The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with another trailblazing innovator whose company's mission is to help community healthcare entities navigate the pains of healthcare IT through not a one-size-fits-all method, but through tailored services and projects that are right-sized for smaller healthcare entities. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Phil Stravers, Partner and Chief Marketing Officer with ICE Technologies. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for making the time today. Before we begin our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background? Sure. Glad to. So I am, uh, I guess, a technologist by trade and have kind of fallen into healthcare, but I actually owned my first business when I was 14 and, and kind of fell in love with the services industry. And so I've always had a bit of an entrepreneur and passion for customer service in my background. Actually, my education is in sales and marketing. But I spent a number of years actually doing as an integrator in technology and actually ran a national help desk for a little while. And so I've been doing things, uh, consulting in IT for a little over 25 years. And I've been with ICE since January of 1990, and I've actually been one of two owners of ICE since 2003. Wow. Could you take a couple of minutes and provide our audience with a 10,000-foot overview of ICE Technologies? Sure. ICE has been in business for 25 years, and when Keith and I bought the company in 2003, we totally divested of everything non-healthcare to focus exclusively on small and mid-sized healthcare providers. And what we are most passionate about is enabling healthcare providers, particularly in the community and rural settings, to improve lives through what we call practical IT solutions. And to kind of unpack that, we refer to ourselves as the BASF of healthcare IT. We don't really make the stuff. We just make it work better. And I love it. So how we do that is we, we take enterprise IT best practice concepts and then try to tailor them for the community healthcare setting and then just craft IT service delivery models that make sense in that space. So whether it's help desk services or IT strategic planning or a virtual security officer or applications optimization or maybe even wireless networking, we've tailored an offering for this space designed to produce results within the budget that's realistic. Phil, this might be hard to do, but could you give us an overview, an IT overview of the market you serve? What applications are they using? What are their typical big challenges? Sure. Most of our clients are what we would call community and rural hospitals or healthcare entities. And that's anywhere from a 25-bed critical access hospital to a 150-bed community or regional provider. And most of them have some variety of enterprise healthcare information system combined with maybe an ambulatory EHR or 
and a number of other third-party systems that make up the enterprise requirements. I was just at a facility in Texas a week ago that said that they had somewhere on the order of 240 different applications in play, even though they were using one of the top five enterprise hospital information system vendors or healthcare information system vendors. So they're dealing with a lot of challenges in the sense that there's this big desire to integrate technology, but the number of pieces of technology that you have to bring to bear to serve this very diverse need in these healthcare settings is pretty significant. I read recently that experts are predicting that one-fifth of U.S. hospitals will seek affiliation within the next five years. Why is that so? Yeah, in my experience, there's probably three main drivers that I hear from hospitals when I'm out and about. And the number one thing is margins are eroding while compliance efforts and risk mitigation requirements are expanding. So this really causes healthcare leaders to believe they have to partner with a larger entity because they believe that that larger entity will have a more robust infrastructure that they can just piggyback onto to cover their bases. So that's probably the number one reason. The second thing that I see is future payment models would indicate that organizations are going to have to get good at managing populations of patients within a geographic region in order to affect quality and capitated care kind of contracts. So to do that, the concept today really assumes that critical mass is required to get to the numbers to justify the enhanced payments. And they also then need to coordinate or collaborate on care within that geographic region. And then the third thing that I see a lot is really fear of the unknown, as well as I might say early surrender in organizations that are struggling financially due to margin pressure. So many of the community healthcare organization boards don't necessarily have the stamina or the fortitude to do what's necessary to keep their local community healthcare organization thriving. And I often hear from leadership that they've already fired all the bullets in their gun in terms of cost reduction. So they have no choice but to align. But the interesting thing that I find is I don't hear those same facilities talking about how they fired every bullet to increase their market share or identify high-performing service lines. So I think it really stems from this kind of nonprofit mentality of many healthcare organizations. They don't see themselves as a business. They see themselves as a necessary service for the community. And that's noble, and I really appreciate that about them. But I think there's a balance of both that's needed, whether you're aligned with the health system or not. So there's probably more factors, but those are three that seem to dominate the conversations I'm party to. Well, the last one might be the answer to my next question about what changes are everyone facing and how do leaders need to think about the future? Well, yeah, I alluded to this on the last question. Payment model change is probably the biggest one. We're moving to risk and quality-based payments. CMS set a goal in 2018 that 90% of all payments will be linked to quality and 50% of those will come in the form of alternative payment models. And recently, there was an article published, I think, in Becker's that 758 hospitals in 2016 will have their Medicare payments reduced for being among those with the highest rates of hospital-acquired conditions. So changes aren't just coming. It's already kind of here, and facilities are just now waking up to the reality. I think one other thing is the demographics of the healthcare consumer is changing. Everyone seems to have an eye on where the baby boomer generation is, but we tend to forget that by 
2025, millennials will make up 75% of the workforce and therefore will control a significant amount of the healthcare spend. So at the same time, when millennials' buying power is exceeding that of boomers, we've got boomers reaching retirement age. And as a result, they're saying that 20% of the population will need to see a doctor on a monthly basis. So there's no shortage of need for healthcare, but where we go to get it is going to change. So you might be headed to CVS or Walgreens or come into some healthcare organization via a telehealth app rather than the local family clinic. We talked a little about affiliation. What is technology's role in the topic of M&A? Yeah, I recently wrote an article about this because I think a lot of times technology has way too much to do with the decision for a merger. Technology by design should be an enabler and an accelerator of business efficiency and process improvement. But I think too often in healthcare today, we make technology the business objective rather than the tool to achieve the objective. In my experience, that never works. Too many facilities have been far too focused on implementing technology for compliance sake, or they buy software so that they can tell the doctor they did something, and in both cases, we miss the entire purpose of technology. So where does technology fit in the M&A topic? In my experience, it's a tool you leverage once the business objectives are well-defined. And secondly, as it relates to M&A, there's great potentials, I think, for economies of scale in IT. But I think one of the misnomers is that health systems already have invested a ton in technology and related technology staffing. So layering in a smaller organization should be fairly simple without significant new investment. But in my experience, the volumes are different, the business needs are different, and the markets and associated service mix are different. So if a larger entity is going to be good at supporting smaller organizations, they almost need to create a system within the system, which really blows up the models for economies. And I'm notedly, based on our description of our company, a bit biased, but I believe that independent facilities could probably get to the same or better economies by working together or working with consulting partners designed for that purpose. If you take revenue cycle as an example, many smaller organizations have realized great benefits by partnering with outside rev cycle firms, largely because those firms have the methods and the depth of staff that are pretty hard to come by in the smaller rural setting. So they can also then play the odds of fractional resources to get vertical expertise, et cetera. But I guess to get back to your point, I think IT is part of the decision-making process during acquisition. And I would say for both the buyer and the seller, it does need to be part of it. But for the buyer, an organization that already has their IT house in order should be more attractive to acquire because it speaks to operational discipline and their ability to add value to the enterprise. And for the seller... They probably need to make sure that the approach the larger entity will bring fits their needs, or they may very well be jumping into an environment that makes them less efficient and less responsive to their community. Phil, I didn't share this with you, but I'm a 25-year healthcare IT consultant, and I spent much of my time in Boise and Peoria and Roanoke, where I'd work with a mothership to acquire hospitals or implement systems that already acquired hospitals. And I've gone through just what you're talking about, where the big hospital in the center acquired some small hospital and their intention and their whole goal was to have a referral pattern. Yep. Well, that had nothing to do with the goals of the small hospital, which was to serve a community. And Correct. not that they couldn't overlap, but 
what happened is these big hospitals would roll their big systems out to a 25-bed hospital. And I told the CEOs this at one hospital in Illinois, we can re-engineer the radiology process in your 20-bed hospital over lunch with all the documentation we need, with a whiteboard, and all the employees, they'll be trained. At the mothership, it's going to take us a year and a half to to re-engineer. And so the fact that we're using the same system, the same technology, is really a problem, not a solution. Because there is no way we want to configure that system the same in both instances. It's really two totally different businesses. And I always called it forcing puppies to eat dog food. You got to feed the puppies puppy food and the dogs dog food. And they have much different needs. Yeah, we often say that rural is not small urban. (laughs) It's different. Yeah. Well, they have needs and there are things you can implement like telehealth that will create a connection to a health system or a bigger entity that don't necessarily mean you have to affiliate or purchase and become everybody have the same badge on their chest. Yeah, and the value of data sharing among the entities is legitimate. And particularly when we start talking about some of these capitated care type arrangements where, you know, total hip replacement, you've got to be accountable for that. You know, you're getting one payment regardless of what happens to them in the skilled nursing facility or this OR. So there is this need to share data, but this is the one thing that I think gets missed is everybody assumes that in order to share data, they have to be on the same system. And to me, that just is a disguise or it's a little bit of a smokescreen in, in some respects about the real need for technology. And reporting data out should not be something that would dictate that I have to have everybody on the exact same system in order to share information. If that were the case, we would have all of the banks in the United States running on the same information system. And I know it's not the same kind of data, but the reality is getting data out of a system is not that difficult. Replacing an entire system with another is very difficult. (laughs) And it seems like we're, in order to get data out of systems, we think replacing them is the easiest way to get there. I think you could probably hire an awful lot of report writers and do a lot of damage before we ever got anywhere close to the replacement cost. I agree. You know, we can't solve every problem in the world, but there's also the issue of workflow. And to your point, you don't need the same system to have the same workflow. And in most cases, in the case that I suggested, where you have the big 900-bed hospital and the 20-bed hospital, they need different workflows, Right. much different workflows. If they have a system that won't let those two pieces have different workflows, then you have a bigger problem than if you had two different systems, to your point of, you don't need the same system to share data. Right. Yep. What are some recommendations that you could offer for evaluating the effectiveness of IT before we just assume that some affiliation or some acquisition is required? Well, I think if the organization is questioning effectiveness, they really have no choice but to do some sort of external assessment. And in my view, the assessment's actually pretty simple, and in some respects, people might think I'm oversimplifying, but in my experience, I'm not. Success with IT is really born out of a few key elements, well, actually several, but I'd be looking for an organization to either do a self-assessment or, like I say, bring somebody up from the outside to look at it, and I think to get an honest assessment is pretty hard to do if you're doing it yourself. But good IT strategy and an annual plan that's aligned with the business objectives 
if we don't have a plan, the big issue of the day typically rules the decision-making, and each project then kind of compounds daily management difficulties. And so that's one area that I'd be looking at an organization to say, okay, how are you doing with that? Because it all starts with that kind of cascades down from there. And then from a standpoint of how do we get to the plan and how do we execute the plan, I'd be looking at things like IT governance model. And one of the keys that has to exist, particularly in these community settings, is what I would call a well-educated, cross-representative IT steering team. And I'm not talking about a technical team. I'm talking about more of a decision-making body that oversees the IT plan development and implementation. They're the group that resolves issues that may conflict with the plan. One other thing I'm always looking for is super user infrastructure. I hear a lot of people give lip service to this, but not a lot of people that are doing it right. And a couple of key questions on that is, are the responsibilities of the super users documented in their job description? And if one super user leaves, is there a process for filling that role and orienting the replacement? Because so often people say, well, yeah, we had super users during the go live. But this is really discipline that needs to be perpetuated throughout. And if you don't have those, you're not going to be successful whether you integrate with an entity or not. One of the benefits that you might actually have, by the way, of affiliating or merging is they're going to force these disciplines if they're a good organization. And one of the other things that I see that where people get frustrated and start to throw up their hands and say, I need help, is they don't have a resource plan that accompanies the IT plan. So they might have done their goal setting and say, we want to do these projects, but they didn't take the next step to allocate resources within IT to say, these are the daily operational requirements that we have, requires this amount of staffing or this amount of labor in order to meet the need. And then we have these projects that require these types of expertise and this amount of labor. And what I find is when that's absent, IT always fails to meet the objectives. And the whole org chart that goes with that, where you start to separate the daily reactive and even proactive disciplines from the projects is a pretty big deal. And then the, the last thing that I see just on the real short list here is project management. If we're not leveraging professional project management, and I think people make the mistake of expecting the software vendors to provide that, you wouldn't build a building without a general contractor, but we do the equivalent with IT all the time. Phil, I'm a certified project manager too, and it just grinds me that even after 25 years, I'll have to spend man months of effort over a 12-month project educating on project management and the components and the pieces and parts, and that I've always been taught 10% of the cost should be in project management. Yep. The bigger a project is multiple project managers, business analysts, financial analysts. If you have big programs like I had when I worked at Accenture, you know, we had three and four financial analysts for projects that had 500 people on them. So right. if you are successful with a project without having 10% of your cost being project management, you got lucky. And chances are it's not going to happen again. No, and, and what you end up with in many cases is not necessarily a completely failed implementation where no one can do anything with it, although you find plenty of those examples too. But the bigger thing that's kind of this sleeping giant in the industry right now is you have underutilized technology yeah. and an underinformed user base, underempowered user base 
that isn't getting the return on the investment. And when now that stimulus has stopped paying for these projects, those chickens are going to come home to roost, and we're going to actually have to show a return on this investment somewhere. And right now it's pretty dismal, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there weren't stated goals, a stated project charter, and a method to implementing to those goals and charter. Phil, what's next for ICE Technologies? What new can your customers expect in 2016? Yeah, so new at ICE, probably one of the things that just a little bit of a remix on an old song for us is we're really working to create new service offerings that empower that local IT director. For many years, we just had to be that. And we're finding an evolution now and a maturing of the markets. Now, not every community can find IT resources, so we still have to augment a significant amount. But one of the things we're really focusing on and we'll be emphasizing in 2016 is how we train and teach and mentor and provide toolkits for an IT services director or an IT department director in those settings. So that's a big one. Another one that we are always having to stay in front of, I think, is kind of the shift to ambulatory. So we've been working on a number of projects where doing more to help the ambulatory environment mesh with the acute care for lack of a more glamorous description. And that has to do with interoperability interfaces and exchanges. And um, so a lot of what we're doing there is really consulting not only on the regulatory requirements, but on the tools and the pieces that uh, exist in that space. And then the last thing that I would kind of throw out there, well, two more things, actually. We're doing a fair amount on the data side now. We're creating custom dashboards for facilities, and we're not using anything you'll always find with us is that practical bent. And, you know, we're just using standard Microsoft SQL tools for the most part, not some fancy analytics platform, because a lot of times those platforms, you'll spend more money in the acquisition than you still have to go write custom queries to make it worthwhile. So we just jump right to writing the queries and serving it up using a tool like SSRS. But one of the things that we're finding some good success with is actually using those analytics tools or doing those queries from a focus of monitoring end-user behavior in the EHR. Because we see all these problems about clinician engagement, doctor engagement. And a lot of times what it comes down to is not necessarily, there might be some limitations in the software that are causing frustration, but a lot of times it's inconsistency of work and usage. And so what we can do is actually drive some data out of the system to show where those inconsistencies of usage are happening and create new efficiency. And that brings me to the last thing, which is we've started to integrate lean into our approach to evaluating and optimizing the use of these technologies and found that this A3 process that we've injected and kind of tailored for this setting has really done a nice job to remove IT as the conversation and put value to the patient at the center. And so we're really excited about some of the early results we've been seeing integrating our lean practice with our clinical technology improvement group and seeing some great results in, in all kinds of different care settings. That's exciting. Putting the patient where they belong. Good deal. Right on. Phil, before we wrap it up here, before I let you go, where can people go to contact you and learn more about ICE Technologies? 
easiest place to find us is at icetechnologies.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ice Technologies. You can find my personal posts at Phil Stravers on Twitter. And we'll sometimes throw some things out under my LinkedIn account. And we have an Ice Technologies LinkedIn account as well. So just encourage people to go out there and check us out. We do have a blog page on our website. I'd really encourage people to take a look at because we're always posting new information out there as well. Yeah, y'all have a lot of great content. Your website is awesome. Thank you. Phil, it's so great to have you. Thanks for stopping by and giving us your wisdom today. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. It was fun. And that wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Phil Stravers, I'm Joe Lavelle. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare.